0: what's up this is the legendary tales i'm your host isadora martin Day
1: and i'm adam bloor
0: and this is the podcast where we tell you about stuff that is creepy spooky interesting anything really that can fall vaguely under the category <sighs> of legendary is what we address if
1: you've seen the album cover for the legendary tales on spotify just go or
0: itunes or anywhere whatever. else overcast wherever other, you listen other
1: spot other Jeez. streaming services are available
0: most of our listeners are on overcast
1: i don't even know what that is
0: well, we're there. We're yeah. here.
1: Great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, this is that podcast. That's who we are. And I'm very tired.
0: Okay, so, so for those of you that are regular tuning ins, Adam is currently in the south of France sunning himself. So while I stay here and work on our gorgeous house project, we decided to do three days, three podcasts so that you guys are covered for three weeks. Yeah. This is day two
1: yeah and I'm act I, I I for the last two days I've been like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, and it's not not even a, not even a little bit Adam obviously know, hasn't I'm got the
0: history degree that I have because this is nothing
1: I'm such a big baby,
0: all right, so Adam's first up today, yeah
1: and I don't think we mentioned this on the end of last episode, but
0: we said creepy.
1: We said creepy, but we've decided to do some famous spirits, I believe, is we can put Ghost that story moniker of that. We should put in some like spooky wind sound here. All right, I'll find some well, just for you. Can we do it can we overlay it over the whole podcast? So it's just an <laughs> hour and a half of spooky wind noises.
0: Yeah, that would be creepy. Yeah. Also very unlistenable. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I decided to cover The Flying Dutchman this week because I didn't know anything about it. Awesome. I did find a poem. Yeah, and I was going to read it live now, but it's 115 verses. So I didn't even bother writing any of it down.
0: Dude, I had a poem that was also like thousands of verses, and I think I found four.
1: I found a couple, not from that poem specifically, but I was thinking if I read it and like it enough, I might just record it separately. Okay, look
0: out for a bonus episode where Adam reads you a poem. We can just
1: slap it somewhere. Okay. So before we talk about the ghost ship, the Flying Dutchman, we're going to talk a bit about the Dutch Golden Age. This was a period of time from the year 1581 to 1672 where the Netherlands were the foremost maritime and economic power on the globe. This was largely due to cheap... Cheap labor, cheap migrant labor, they cite Protestant work ethic. they were the Protestants were very hard workers due to like Calvinistic okay because of Calvin the
0: okay the yeah, yeah yeah Calvin
1: they were like, yeah, we'll just work really, really hard, and they had like high literacy levels and stuff, so the Dutch were doing pretty well then, yeah, and so they they were also able to able to cite cheap lumber, and with the invention of the wind powered sawmill, they were able to very quickly work lumber and make big ships.
0: This is actually the period of history that I studied at university, so I know lots about well, no, okay, I know lots about it from the English perspective, <laughs> yeah, which is uh, we were the second
1: yeah, the second largest maritime yes um force. yeah, I mean, obviously England's very well known for its navy. and the yeah. Netherlands ought, would make sense as well since they are heavily coastal, yeah, I uh, d- just
0: mostly know about the tulip trade because
1: because tulips are very important. I I didn't go at all into the tulips because it didn't really come up in my... You mean
0: tulips and piracy and (laughs) Dutch pirate ships don't have anything in common? No,
1: I guess not. Oh,
0: okay. But tulips are a big thing. There's a really fascinating, and by fascinating, I mean
1: hard to read book. Hard tulips. About tulips. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to read that because the background is interesting because this is so tangential, but it's really, really cool. But there's an itemized bill from from some king or duke or something, and there's a tulip bud on there that they collected for... Something like 300 head of cattle and two wagonfuls of grain. And yeah,
0: it was a huge thing.
1: A big market for tulips.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm pretty and ab- such
1: a gamble as well because you don't know what they look like until. Well, the
0: whole point was that they wanted them to break with a variegated leaf, uh flower. That was like, I think the aim of the tulip market was that they wanted them to break with a variegated flower. Yeah. So you would buy bulbs and the bulbs could change hands like. 50 60 times before the bulb even bloomed, yeah, at different rates. That's
1: really cool. So, maybe that we'll do an episode on tulips because that's a pretty legendary market. Yeah, we could do a markets or, episode, yeah, which is weird, but we could do that, I think.
0: Because what was the markets? Tin and copper. That's what we yeah. studied in history through our house. You guys, did.
1: you guys interested in a, in a markets episode? Let yes. us know, <laughs> uh, because even if you're not, we'll probably do it anyway. Okay, so off tulips, um, the Dutch, being traditional map makers and seafarers, did very, very well in sea trade and maritime exploration. They developed trade with the Far East, even developed a monopoly of trade with Japan, where they traded spices, which went for large amounts of money due to the amount of effort and the kind of risk that it took to get them back to the Netherlands. So wait,
0: if we do do markets, I'm going to do the Silk Road.
1: Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. That'd be good. I think Spice is also a good one to look into, because Spice has always been a very lucrative thing. Yeah, but I
0: think so. Anyway, moving on. Anyway,
1: they rested dormant position in the world trade away from Portugal and Spain at this time as well. So they became very much VC trading countries. In 1602, the Dutch East India Company was founded. It was the first multinational corporation with which they started the monopoly on trade with Japan. They also traded favorably with their Baltic neighbors, uh, for basic resources, uh, resources such as wood and grain, which they could then sell for a profit. They could sell such simple things for good profit because there were constantly bad harvests in England and France. And that helped boost them in that oh. way. They happen to be, since they're right in the middle of these two sort of very different boring yeah, places, they could do trade with both and, yeah. and profit very heavily. The Dutch East India Company, as well as being a, a large trading firm, was also a sort of a part of their war machine. It was obviously part of their their naval forces, mm-hmm. um, they, but they had sort of quasi political power, okay. so they could wage war. Yeah, they could imprison and execute prisoners, mm-hmm. negotiate treaties, strike coin, and also had the power to establish colonies, which they were doing all over the place. Yeah. Like Jakarta in Indonesia is was originally a. That's the weirdest colony. example,
0: because I think there's tons of huge Dutch colonies.
1: I know that one specifically because of a captain who I will talk oh, about okay. in a little bit. But yeah, Jakarta, I know very strange because the Dutch had colonies everywhere. Jakarta
0: is going to be prevalent. Uh,
1: sort of. Well, Jakarta won't be, but a city near Jakarta will be okay. prevalent. This also They also needed, because they were growing economically so quickly, in 1609, they established the first ever central bank, the Bank of Amsterdam, which cool. was used to finance all of these wartime things they also had optimal geographic location to develop this superpower a quote i found from ronald findley and kevin h o'rourke says the foundations were laid by taking advantage of location midway between the bay of biscay and the baltic seville seville which is in spain and lisbon which is in portugal thank you isadora
0: okay he asked me earlier whether i knew where those two <laughs> cities were and you did know and i did know and i'm really impressed with yeah myself. that was
1: amazing so between those two places and the Baltic ports were were too apart from each other for direct trade enabling the Dutch to provide profitable intermediation carrying salt wine cloth spices and silvers to the east and then bringing back grain fish and naval stores to the west the Dutch share of european shipping tonnage was well over half during its ascendancy so they wow. were doing even more trade for europe than they were doing like for themselves cool. and still profiting very heavily they also had the largest merchant fleet in Europe during the 17th century, and again, favorable position. They were sit- situated on an east to west and north to south trade route, and they could also go to the German hinterlands via the Rhine. Okay, so they just—they so d-
0: were just basically baller.
1: Yeah, they did a—they did a very good job of being situated where they are.
0: Well done, Holland, for picking your country.
1: <laughs> good job, guys. Well done. <laughs> good job for I guess staying here. So at this period in history, the Dutch are dominating the sea, their ships vastly outnumber any other country, and the mark of the Dutch India Company is recognizable by nearly everybody who sees it.
0: Okay, makes sense. Oh, wait, I see where we're going with this. Enter
1: the Flying Dutchman. Okay. So the Flying Dutchman is, if anyone doesn't know, a ghostly apparition of a big ship. It's interesting because early reports claim that it's a merchant vessel that crashed off the, case, the, the Cape of Good Hope, which is, the, which is South Africa in route probably to Indonesia to pick up some spices okay. or something. But as the stories go on and on, and as the years pass, the Dutchman sort of turns into like a prison ship where spirits or seamen who have not sinned. Thanks, Ben. Ben is 12. He's in here ruining the podcast again. <laughs> um, it's not the word sin, is not But who commit crimes against uh, other seamen. Uh, are sort of like damned to this ship, and they just sort of have to work off their crimes. Yeah. It's a very strange but it's, but pirates are like naturally superstitious. I know that when we talked about oarfish two weeks ago that the oarfish was second to ship crashes that like the leviathans are the the most talked about when it comes to those who work the sea, okay and happen to be men so this is this is just a legend that that comes about okay, because of that. It was first mentioned in 1790 by John MacDonald. Just go with sailors. No, seamen. <laughs> in 1790, John MacDonald first mentioned the Flying Dutchman in, travels in, in a, a writing called Travels in Various Parts of Europe, which is like such a horrible name for, anyway. <laughs> and he said, the weather was so stormy that the sailors said they saw the Flying Dutchman. This, he, and then he continues to write, saying that the Dutchman was a ship that tried to come into port at the, again, the, port, or the Cape of Good Hope, uh, but was cast upon the rocks, unable to be led ashore, and now appears to those who sail in bad weather.
0: Well, he makes it sound like everyone knew about it. He was just the first to write about it.
1: Yeah. Well, So because of this time period, because I'm sure many Dutch ships crashed off of okay. this tape, because that that writing was nearly 130 years after the end of the Dutch Golden Age. Okay. So, you know, it's just how things yeah. progress, I suppose. Yeah. I'm sure that sailors were talking about it for years before that. Yeah. Uh, And that's probably true because we'll get into why people see this ship. Okay. It was mentioned again in 1795 by George Barrington in a voyage to Botany Bay. He said, I had often heard of the superstition of sailors respecting apparitions and doom, but had never given much credit to the report. It seems that some years since a Dutch man of war was lost, was lost off the Cape of Good Hope and every soul on board perished. So again, that I...
0: Did he name it the Flying Dutchman in that writings?
1: No, because John Macdonald called it the Flying Dutchman. Okay. I think that's interesting too, because obviously big ships are called, some ships are called Man of Wars. And I always just assumed that the Dutchman was because it was a Dutch ship after like doing a little okay. bit, of, but it might just be like a portmanteau of okay. Dutch and Man of War. Okay. Maybe. So I did a little bit of research on John George Barrington because I sort of, I did the thing where I hovered my mouse over his yeah. hyperlink in the Wikipedia yeah. article and his first- attribution was that he was a world famous pickpocket so i wanted to i wanted <laughs> that's to, amazing i wanted to read a little bit more about him so he was a famous pickpocket and a very popular socialite in london in like the seventeen hundred, the late seventeen hundred.
0: i love that those two things are like
1: they're like side and, they're like hand in hand
0: hand in hand like you could
1: so he was born to like a relatively well-to-do silver smith okay i born in ireland and then ended up in london because he was fleeing a pickpocket thing yeah, and he was, like, super popular with everyone who knew him, and he was written about extensively in London at the time of his of his sort of, you know, pickpocketing adventures. Wow. Yeah, very cool. I read a report that he was in Covent Garden, and he pickpocketed a snuffbox valued at 30,000 pounds off of, like, a Russian count mm. who didn't press any charges, didn't, like, didn't go okay. forward with the... Uh,
0: because he pickpocketed it, or because who cares whether you lose I, I, a thirty thousand pound? I, I don't know. He,
1: he, they, they they captured him, oh. and they knew that he had done it, but he just didn't. Okay, but he was on his way to Botany Bay because he was transportation is a, a word that is used for his his sentencing, but it, I think it it's probably more akin to like exile, like when they would oh, ship okay. people to Australia, Australia or whatever. Um, and so when he was on the ship to Botany, Botany Bay. Some of the other convicts on board were planning on having a mutiny and taking over the ship. Mm-hmm. And when he re- arrived in Botany Bay, he ratted on them to the captain. And okay. so they granted him emancipation. Nice. Sort of a cool guy. Just yeah, Just sort of okay. an interesting character that he you come across. He seems like you could
0: make a movie about him. Yeah,
1: probably. And you could you could almost write anything you want because he's sort of mysterious as well.
0: Cool. I like it.
1: Yeah. And this is, on that trip, he claimed to see the Dutchman. Okay. In 1803, John Layden mentions it in Scenes of Infancy. This is sort of where the Dutchman gets its, this is a prison ship. Oh, okay. It is a common superstition of mariners that in the high southern latitudes on the coast of Africa, hurricanes are frequently ushered in by the appearance of a specter ship denominated the Flying Dutchman. The crew of this vessel are supposed to have been guilty of some dreadful crime in the infancy of navigation, and who have been stricken with pestilence and are ordained still to traverse the ocean on which they perished till the period of their penance expire.
0: And that's kind of like the Pirates of the Caribbean yes.
1: version. Yeah, so I was sort of going to go into, okay. into that, exactly. Um, yeah, in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, Dead Man's Chest, you live on the Dutchman because you did something bad, even though you... Beca- Doesn't it
0: you pulled some coins from a cuss.
1: No, that was, the, that was Curse of the Black Pearl. Oh, okay. You, Absolute philistine. Sorry. Um, In Dead Man's Chest, Orlando Bloom's father uh, performed a mutiny, I believe is what happened, and the pirates on the Black Pearl threw him overboard, and his soul was damned to work the galleys of Davy Jones, the Flying Dutchman. I did not, in my research, find that there's actually any connection between Davy Jones and the Flying Dutchman. That just seems to be two maritime legends that they kind of smashed together okay. because they're both kind of cool, I guess. Maybe we'll do Davy Jones another week. And then again, in 1804, Thomas Moore mentions it in Written of Passing, Dead Man's Island in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. This is the poem bit. Ooh. So you're welcome. Thank you. Fast gliding along, a gloomy bark. Her sails are full, though wind is still, and there blows not a breath, her sails to fill. So, ghost ship. Ghost ship. They've attributed a captain to this ship.
0: And it's not Davy Jones. It's not Davy
1: Jones. This is a real captain who worked for the Dutch East India Company.
0: Okay.
1: His name was Bernard Foke, F-O-K-K-E. I know nothing okay. about yeah,
0: that the Dutch sense. languages, yeah.
1: so I'm going to say folk. He was well-known for his uncanny speed of his sailing excursions. Okay. So he once sailed from the Dutch Republic to Java, which is the city in Indonesia, yeah. which is near Jakarta. So there's that tie back okay. And he did the trip in three months and four days. And that trip requires you. Wow. That trip requires you to go from the Netherlands Mm -hmm. west around Africa down past the Cape of Good Hope, which is the the bottom peak. And then up through. So, like, look at this.
0: Uh Uh-huh. You'd have
1: to have gone like this. West
0: around Africa.
1: And then down past the Cape and then up into Indonesia, which would be like. Okay. So, like. Netherlands,
0: big bulky Africa.
1: Yeah, this way. And then Japan's like here. Indonesia's like here. Yeah. Africa's like here. Okay. It was very far. Well, I know
0: Japan's a really long way.
1: I couldn't find a a distance. Okay. But but people at this period were very impressed that he could do this.
0: Well, okay. I I am very impressed as well. They were
1: so impressed that they thought he may have had deals with supernatural entities such as the devil.
0: They are right. They
1: thought maybe he had a deal with the devil. Okay. And some people didn't believe that he had done this trip that quickly, but he apparently delivered, delivered some letters to Rickoff von Gones that okay. proved that he had left three months beforehand. Yeah. To the day that he arrived. Wow. So he's often attributed as the captain of the Dutchman.
0: Well, did he die on a ship?
1: I don't know. <laughs> okay. Nope. No, I think that they, I think that it's just like a, because of, How quickly, because he he was a legendary captain. Yeah, there's even a statue of him apparently somewhere in the Netherlands. Because
0: he was a legendary captain, and it's a legendary ship.
1: Yeah, they just kind of married them. So that there were also some more modern, I say modern, big air quotes sightings. Um, because I think that the most recent sighting is George, Prince of Wales, (laughs) saw it. (laughs) You
0: know what? I feel like I've read this somewhere. Yeah, he was
1: on um.
0: Not by the way, the newly baby
1: No, George V. George the Fifth. I think George V. Yeah. He was on a three-year voyage, which it's a long time to be on a boat living on a I know he wasn't on a boat for three years yeah. straight, but like to
0: to when you're a Prince of Wales to disappear for three years from your country long time. on a boat.
1: Yeah. So he was on a voyage with his brother Albert and their nanny, I think, or their tutor. Sorry, it was a tutor. Okay. And while they were waiting for the repairs of their ship, the B-A-C-C-H-A-N-T-E.
0: You're asking me?
1: Oh, yeah. The Yeah, Bichon- either the Bachante, maybe. I don't know if it's okay. French or not. He saw a ghostly ship emanating a red light in the pre-dawn hours of Ju- July 11th. And they're not sure if George or Albert wrote this, but okay. yeah, a journal recovered from the ship. Okay. The ship didn't sink. I mean, like afterwards, they yep. had his journals. He wrote at 1045 a.m., which that's pretty specific. I don't know what kind of timekeeping they were using when he was okay. a young lad. At 10:45 a.m., the ordinary sailor who had this morning reported the Flying Dutchman fell from the foretop mast and was smashed to atoms. So this is just sort of like if you see the Dutchman as a pirate or a sailor, you're not going to have a very good time yep. afterward. That bad, bad ghost ship. As most of those things they I don't think like sailors have many good omens. They almost they all seem to be kind of bad. They're all okay. they're all Tellers of... They're
0: not glass-full kind of people. No. uh, I mean,
1: understandably, they all had, like, scurvy and were malnourished and had to live on the ocean, which I can only imagine would be terrible. Oh, poor semen. (laughs) Poor semen. So this is a bit of a a quick one for me, but there is a reason why you see the Dutchman. Okay. It's because of an atmospheric phenomena called Fata Morgana, which is a really cool name for something. Yeah. It's an Italian term named for the sorceress of Arthurian legend because this phenomena has been addling the brains of people for like forever.
0: But it wasn't more. What's the name? Morgana Morgana. Oh, okay. Cause I'm like Morgan is okay. Yeah, yeah, that
1: makes sense. So what does it do? You might be asking, and I'm going to tell you in very simple terms,
0: Great, Tell me. In so simple what it terms. does
1: is it distorts objects or objects around an object Okay. to the point where it's unrecognizable for what it is. It can invert the object. So, Turn it upside down.
0: Wait, I missed this.
1: What can? Bata Morgana. What is it? I'll tell you. So scientifically, you want to know what it is first? Yeah. Well, it's a kind of superficial, like visual distortion. Okay. And it occurs when light bends. Okay. This this isn't going to be very complicated. So quit acting like you have a migraine, even though you might actually have a migraine. (laughs) When light rays bend over. Okay. So you have two layers of wind. Okay. You have cool air on the bottom yep. and warm air on top. Okay. The light bends down because okay. of how the air affects it, and it causes things out on the open sea. Or if you're at sea looking into shore, yep. it can cause images to invert okay. or turn on their sides. And I looked at pictures of this, and I mean, obviously, like, I don't think that a ghost ship really exists. I'm sure that these sailors yeah. were also maybe a little bit delirious because they weren't yeah. drinking any clean water, but... You see, when you see something like this, the image changes almost as quickly as you can blink. Oh, okay. Um, And it would look very ghostly and ephemeral out in the distance. It also occasionally, if you see, this can cause ships to look like they're floating above the the waves or even like sunken down into the waves. You can see a ship sailing in the distance with a, a direct image of it inverted above like the top of it. So there's a bunch of really crazy yeah. stuff. And that's more than likely what these sailors were. Almost like
0: when you have, when you see a mirage in the desert. Exactly.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think it's near the, the same sort of atmospheric effect. Okay. But yeah, that's what, uh, wow, cool. What that was. Um, I was kind of hoping to not get as clean of an explanation. Cause I do like mystery ghost stories and stuff, but you know, that's fine.
0: So it's actually scientifically proven, mm-hmm. pretty much, that so the Dutch man is
1: is just an illusion. Cool. Yeah, and, and more likely than not, just a ship in the distance that you couldn't see clearly.
0: Okay, um, okay. Because that you, makes sense. Because
1: like obviously, modern day ships now have big light beacons that flash mm-hmm. as they're sailing, but in the sixteen or the seventeen hundreds, they weren't gonna.
0: And obviously, when you see a weird ship and then something bad happens, you're going to remember the weird ship oh, a yeah. lot more you're than go- if you just saw a ship and nothing happened. You're
1: going to want to blame it on something. And yeah. the Dutchman is just kind of a scapegoat for cool. other ships crashing. But pretty neat, I think.
0: I agree. All right. Well, dark-wise, <laughs> creepy-wise, I went with the Headless Horseman. Nice.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, also, mine not as creepy as I thought it was going to be. No,
0: yours is not really dark or creepy no, at all.
1: just sort of like... This is what people thought they saw. This is what they were actually seeing. The end.
0: (laughs) Kind of the cool thing, I think, about what we do here is we make these things less creepy.
1: Mm. I also think it's interesting because obviously we've both heard of the Flying Dutchman before we did this podcast. Mm -hmm. But we very often have assumptions about, about, you know, like when we did the the Dark Japan episode and we were like, oh, these are going to be super creepy. And mine just ended up not being creepy at all.
0: No, mine was, though.
1: But it's nice to do some illumination, I think. Yes,
0: I think it's good. I think it's good when you give voice to fear.
1: To reason.
0: Yes. Yes. You
1: didn't see a ghost ship.
0: No, but you may have seen a headless horseman.
1: Ooh. Okay. Okay.
0: So, I got some of my information from this website called grunge.com, and they actually did some cool, like, research into it. Okay. So, some of my... What you actually saw and why is uh, gonna be solved by them. Cool. But Thanks, Grunge. Thanks, Grunge. But let me tell you, the first reports of it of a headless horseman is probably actually out of Ireland. 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 <laughs> so okay, I guess quickly. Obviously, Sleepy Hollow is what everyone thinks of. Yeah. So we'll go into Sleepy Hollow. There is no way we can't,
1: you can't not talk about address the, that. Yeah.
0: However, that was in the eighteen hundreds, and this is way back before then. Okay. So and and there's headless horsemen all over. Um, there were, I haven't got into it, but apparently there's actually a good headless horseman in Indian culture. Okay. But I didn't get into that because this was getting long as it was. Yeah. Okay. So the Dahlan is recorded in Fairy Folk and Tales of the Irish Peasantry, edited by uh, W. B. Yeats. 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 Yeats.
1: W. E. Or Y. E.
0: Yeah, Why like ye- the ye- poet.
1: Yeats. Yeats, okay. Yeats. <laughs>
0: I don't know. An omen that sometimes accompanies the Banshee is the Coach bower. an immense black coach mounted by a coffin and drawn by headless horses driven by a Dulahan. D- it will go rumbling to your door, and if you open it, according to a crocker, a basin of blood will be thrown in your face. These headless phantoms are found elsewhere in Ireland. And... They're basically a headless demonic fairy that's usually riding a horse or riding in a carriage behind horses and carrying a head under his arm. Okay, And he is definitely, this is definitely like the creepiest version of this. Mm -hmm. Like some say he carries a whip, which is made of human spinal cord. Yikes. Like this is definitely like. This is pretty dark. The darkest of the headless horsemen. The mouth is usually a hideous grin that touches both sides of the head. Its eyes are constantly moving about and it can see across the countryside, even in the darkest of nights. The flesh of the head is said to have had the color and consistency of moldy cheese. Mm. And they are, oh, they are believed to use the spine of human corpse for a whip. And its wagon is adorned with funeral objects. It has candles and skulls to light the way. Remember that in mind when mm. we go to Sleepy Hollow. The spokes of the wheels are made from thigh bones, and the wagon is covering is made from worm chewed, dried human skin.
1: Why did this this exist? Why?
0: <laughs> the ancient Irish believe that when the doulahan stops riding, a person is due to die. Okay. The Dulahan then calls out the person's name, drawing away the soul of his victim. At which the point, the person immediately drops dead.
1: So does the doulahan. Like, do they have a, they have a, the Grim Reapers in Ireland, obviously. So basically,
0: this is the
1: precursor to the
0: precursor. This is the Irish Grim Reaper.
1: Okay.
0: Um, also, why is a it lo- so
1: horrifying? I,
0: it's honest to God, why the most is...
1: horrifying. That description was vile. <laughs> it's
0: the most horrifying of anything I've ever found while researching this. Mm. And let me be clear that there are illustrations of this online. Gross. And it is also horrifying. Yeah. It also, this Headless Horseman turns a lot back into the later Christian idea of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Okay. There's been death. Gotcha. So there's a lot of, like, Christian tie-ins here. Okay. Which I didn't go down too much. Like, there's lots of Christian saints that were beheaded and stuff like that. Okay. One thing I did go down a little bit.
1: Wait, so it was tied in at this point? The, the Well, this do- is
0: pre-Christian. Okay,
1: okay, okay. Or, like... So after Christianity got to Ireland, yes. they tied it sort of together. Yeah, but
0: horsemen, headless spirits, headless, headless things have been around for a while. And actually, Bram Stoke comes from this area of Ireland where these tales come oh. from. And it's thought that the details in his novel about beheading the corpses to stop the spirits roaming, mm-hmm. vampires, and the practice of burying corpses with a stake through the heart, is actually something that happens at a suicidal burial plot at the crossroads of Ballybro and Clunliffe Road to stop unique, uh, unquieted spirits from wandering the earth.
2: Okay. So there's Interesting. this
0: real tie-in with
2: vampires. how to
0: kill vampires <laughs> as well, beheading, cool. which I, I know at some point we got to do vampires. Oh,
1: yeah, I can't believe we haven't.
0: I know. So at some point we've got to do vampires, but I thought it was, so I didn't, again, I didn't yeah. go down that route because obviously...
1: There's a lot to cover there.
0: Yeah, we'd be here all day yeah, if I we, went.
1: We have an episode to record about that.
0: Um, so there's a lot of tie-ins with this ancient Irish idea. Mm-hmm. Jack-o'-lanterns as well, which is the skull with the light in it. Yep. Um, which obviously ties back into Sleepy Hollow, as we'll get to. Apparently golden objects can force them to disappear. Is there um, not a lot
1: of gold in Ireland. Is that why they used it as like an object know. of
0: I don't know. Also, it wasn't gold objects, it's golden objects.
1: Oh, so it just gold, like in color, like golden colour.
0: I don't know. I will read into that what you want. Um, interestingly, and I just thought I would I thought I would bring this back because you might find it interesting. Uh Dulahan Dulahan is a common name for headless warriors, predominantly knights, in Japanese video games. Oh. Um, The influence obviously has... Crossed over. Crossed over. But apparently... I've never... Apparently there's a... Cool. Japanese... You know how we talk a lot about like a lot of Japanese myths are modern?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And and they're heavily influenced by Western...
0: Yeah, so this is like one of those examples of where it came from. So that's kind of the irish version we're going to talk about the scottish version and the english version okay because obviously going over to america at this point oh a bit later than this yeah we're pre- predominantly people from
1: europe europe <laughs> yeah so
0: these are really yeah the most prominent scottish tale of the headless horseman is a man named ewan
1: are they all named Ewan.
0: i don't know in the 1500s much of the southern portion of the isle of Mull. Belonged to two fractions of the MacLean clan. By the way, this is about the most Scottish tale you're ever going to hear.
1: MacLean, Ewan MacLean. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> those of Lockerbie and those of Duart. In 1538, Ewan of the Little Head decided, after much nagging of his wife, uh-huh. <laughs> to dispose of his father, John MacLean.
1: John MacLean isn't that the name of the, or is it John MacLean's the name of Bruce Willis's character from? Die hard. I
0: don't know. and I don't know. And claim the castle of Mole.
2: Okay. <laughs>
0: John McLean was not in good health, and he called on J- dirt Macleans, <laughs> on the dirt McLean's to help him against the fight against his son.
1: Uh-huh.
0: On a wet, misty morning, the two fractions met at Glan Kinnar, Ewan, with about 50 and uh, fifty hairy and rather unclothed clansmen. Uncouth. Yes, there you go. Unc- met about 100 of his father's men, backed by a further hundred of the Durrett-McClan. Oh, no. McClane clan. Sound-
1: <laughs>
0: mcclane clan. <laughs> who were equally hairy and uncouth. Okay. Who, don't know who wrote this. this? I, maybe I wrote, who wrote this in? It must have been... Oh, an, David Fox wrote this.
1: Is this an English person?
0: I don't know. This was... I don't know. David Fox wrote this on, on
1: somewhere. It sounds like he really hated the Scottish.
0: There were utterly unprintable Gaelic oaths as the two sides fell upon each other with axes and claymores. The fight was going badly for Ewan's outnumbered clansmen. But suddenly, seeing the Duat chieftain ahead of him, Ewan drove his horse, whose name has been lost to the passage of time, straight (laughs) at the Duat chieftain. (laughs) Slashing left and right as he forced his way towards the Duat chieftain, Ewan forgot to look behind him, and an enemy clansman came up behind him with a very sharp axe and with a single blow uh, decapitated him. Oh my god. As Ewan's head fell from his body into the heather, His body must have gone in some sort of spasms and his legs became locked around the horse's belly. The horse must have thought he was going to be beheaded next. So he took off at a full gallop towards home with the luckless uh, Ewan still upright in the saddle. Oh my God. The two feuding parties were so amazed at the sight (laughs) that they stopped fighting. In any event, the loss of Ewan's head meant that he was very unlikely to be chieftain. So there wasn't a lot (laughs) of... I really do like whoever wrote this, by the way. Very funny. So there's not a lot of point in carrying on the fight and it seemed that leaving the field of battle without a head was a bad omen for them. Okay. I mean, it's not great. So
1: Ewan's side just surrendered at that
2: point? Yes, they seems. just
0: kind of gave up. Um, I went too. When the horse... Ewan's followers walked slowly back to Loch Squahabian. Sorry. <laughs> Squabhi, Squabhain. Whatever. Where the late Ewan had his fortified longhouse. Okay. okay. So when the horse and the headless body arrived back at the loch... His servants had a good look down his neck to make sure he didn't currently have a head on.
2: Are you serious?
0: (laughs) Yes. I I don't know. Like I said, David (laughs) Fox wrote this. It's awesome. It's hilarious. Uh, It was decided that the devil was at work and the horse must be watched. So they cured this assumption by cutting off the head of the horse.
1: And sticking it on his body.
0: (laughs) Which did not please the horse one bit.
1: Because the horse would be dead.
0: No. So... Within a very short time, it was apparent that the ghost of Ewan and his horse were determined to let their presence known. Every time that a McLean clansman heard ghostly hoofbreeds in the night, he or she would know that they would shortly be dead. People in the district took to going out, going to bed with their ears stuffed full of sheep's wool. Even today, the story is still believed in outlying areas of Mole. As Lorne McLean will tell you, just a few years ago, he was taking, talking to the wives of one of the crofters on Mole, and she said that she'd heard the headless horseman galloping past in the night and that she feared she would soon be dead. She was actually correct in her assumption as she died only four years later at 98 years old. (laughs) See, told you. Whoever wrote David Fox, awesome. This this goes to show that there's just good reason to believe in the legend. So if you're in the West Highlands of Scotland and you hear a horse galloping past at night, get as far down as you can under the bedclothes, pull them over your head, and pretend that you do not hear the headless horseman.
2: Cool.
0: I just, I I mean...
2: It's a grim story.
0: It's grim. We were going for creepy. I found creepy. Yeah, did a good job. My Irish horseman with the
1: spinal whip and the... The the worm-eaten human skin? Yep. That's vile.
0: Okay, so now we're going to move to the 14th century.
1: Okay, in England.
0: In England. Knights of the Round Table. Oh. So I'm going to try and do a poem, but let me be clear, this is written... Not actually written in old English, because it is written by a man who took an old English poem and made it apparently less hard to read. But we will
2: <laughs> struggle through.
0: <laughs> the Green Knight, his head down laid, Sir Gwain to the axe he braid, To strike the egg of he slow stroked the neck born in twain, the blood burst out of every vein, the head from the body fell. The Green Knight, his head up hent, into the saddle, whitely he split he sprint. spake words both loud and shrill, saith Gwain, think on thy covenant, this day twelve months see thou now want to come to Green Chapel. All had great marvel that they see, that as he so merrily, and bared his head in his hand, forth at the hall he dare rode right, and that saw both king and knight, the lords were in the land. Did that make any sense to
1: you? Yeah, I mean, I I think I was in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in like a youth production. Really? When I was in primary school. Yeah, because
0: I'd never heard of this yeah. before.
1: Yeah, um, I wish I would have remembered it before. Sir Gawain, and the, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So he was one of the Arthur's knights, right? Yeah. Gawain was, and the the Green Knight basically says, does something, and Gawain beheads him. Yeah. And then the Green Knight says, "Hey, Gawain, you've got." whatever the length of time was. Yeah. Um, to, so to, you have a year and then I'm going to come back and cut your head off, basically is how it goes. And then it's a tale of Gwen having to do something that I don't really remember any of the rest of it, but yeah. No,
0: that's well, still pretty good memory. Okay, so he, Gwen accepts a challenge from a mysterious green knight. He dares any knight, um to strike him. He comes into he comes into King Arthur's court and says, anyone want to strike me and cut my head off? Mm-hmm. Uh, Arthur's about to do it, and Gwaine steps up and says, let me do it instead. Um, as soon as Gwen cuts off his head, he then picks up his head and says, a year later, I'll be back, and I'll do the same to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Gwen then spends a year trying to prove that he's like chivalrous and knightly. Yeah. To do with a lady, Bertal Bertalac.
1: So, we did like a youth production. So, I think all the romance was.
0: Yeah, cut. Okay. <laughs> the guy comes back and he flinches when, and a couple of times and he att- pretends to cut his head off three times yeah. and then says it, it was like a test. And yeah. He
1: okay. Because I, I do remember, because I think I again had to study it in university because they talk about like in, in Arthur's Tales, there's always like the three. The yeah. three happens like it comes because it's the Holy Trinity, right? And they use it all the time for symbolism and stuff.
0: So this is before Holy Nothing.
1: Okay, well then I don't know at all what well, the three...
0: I guess it's not really.
1: The, th- the three does, I think, does come up in... Yeah, in- but the
0: three's in Wiccan as well. Whatever you put out comes back to you three
1: times. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay, the three's earliest a good known story to feature this beheading game, mm-hmm. he calls it a game, is an 8th century Middle Irish tale. So we're back to Ireland again. And it's all about three blows with an axe before letting his target depart without injury. A beheading exchange also appears in the twelfth century Life of Caradoc, uh, a French narrative, and in the French one, the challenger is the guy's father in disguise, come to test his honor.
1: So is it literally like in the in the story? It's I'm gonna try. I'm gonna fake cut your head off three times, and you basically just can't cower out.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's to do with like, are you chivalrous to like? Play your side of the bargain.
1: Weird, because it because you because when you use the word exchange, because what they call yeah. it, a beheading exchange, that's not what that sounds like. No,
0: I don't want to say. <laughs> I really didn't. So I have to say that the original poem, what I just read, was the third version from the original mm-hmm. one. So the original one was, the original one was legitimately unreadable to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was written. I wrote down somewhere what the language was, but I can't remember now. And then there was another one. That was that first writing is Sir Gawain of the Green and the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. Then, in the fifteenth to seventeenth century, is a rhymed retelling of it called the Green Knight, okay. in which the plot is simplified, motives are more fully explained, <laughs> and some names are changed. The fact that I still couldn't get through the poem of the Green Knight gives you an idea as to how little I understood about the yeah. original fable.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: So I'd like to see your children's production of it, because yep. maybe that's the kind of level of understanding <laughs> I can have. <handle.
1: laughs> I think I have it on DVD somewhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so now we're in the 14th century. Now we're going a little bit later. We're going to go to the Brothers Grimm. Nice. So this just gives you an idea that headless horsemen... Forever. Forever have been around. Um, the Brothers Grimm recorded German tales depicting headless riders, dating back to the 1600s. A man, any man who commits a crime that deserves to be punished by beheading during his lifetime will be condemned to be headless in his afterlife. This was what?
1: I'm sorry, what, one more time?
0: Any man who commits a crime okay. that deserved to be punished by beheading during his lifetime yep. will be condemned to be headless in his afterlife. Okay. In the tale, Hans Jiggenfel, from Dresden, A woman is gathering acorns near a part of a forest called Lost Waters when she hears a hunting horn and a thud. The woman turns to see a rider standing over her with a grey horse and a grey cloak. The woman thinks nothing of it and continues to carry on her acorn collecting. The next day in the woods, the woman is met by the same horseman, only this time he's carrying his own head. The rider calls himself Hans Jigandersal. And asks if she took the acorns without permission, and tells the woman that when he was young he drank excessively and took as he pleased. That life of sin had condemned him to an afterlife as an evil spirit. This German version makes the headless horseman something of a cautionary tale. I I don't really get what the cautionary thing was here. Like, was
1: he threatening to kill her?
0: If you don't, if you take acorns, weir- you'll get haunted. I don't.
1: It's weird that. As a spirit who was condemned for doing something bad, if the cautionary tale is that he will kill you, that's not like a bad trade-off for being like a butthead. Yeah, <laughs> like if you're I, if you're evil and and then you're meant to beheaded, and then you are beheaded in the afterlife, but then you're able to take other people's souls, who are you cautioning?
0: Well, the thing is he didn't seem to kill her in this version. He just, he just, just of, had a chat with her.
1: I mean, I mean, maybe it's because she was only stealing acorns, like if she had been like hunting. In the King's Land, which is a big no I don't know. Oh, yeah, that that's, was a big no-no. Yeah. That's-
0: okay, so then there's another one that the Grimm's wrote about, which is a man named Hackleberg who was so devoted to hunting that when he dies, rather than go to heaven, he begs God to keep him on earth hunting. He then becomes the wild huntsman roaming the woods with his fiery hounds on an eternal hunt. Uh, according to mythology and fiction explained, if a hunter hears the thunderous horn of the wild's huntsman, they should not go hunting the following day. Poor hunting accidents and serves as a vengeance figure. Nothing about him being headless. No,
1: but and what's what is, vengeance for what? I I've heard of the wild hu- the wild huntsman, I think. If he
0: came upon someone in the woods, he would seek out those who wronged others so he could punish them. Oh,
1: so sort of not a not like not similar to the other hunt. No, kind
0: him. of a different
1: I don't no, know. But not, but not so the evident. Brothers Grimm
0: ones, I just kind of
1: skipped. Yeah, I, that's kind of weird because they normally do like the really weird stuff. But maybe that's why I've never heard of them because all the Grimm's I've heard about are like, you know, in Cinderella, like they burn the stepmother alive. Yeah. Um, Those are kind of tame.
0: Yeah. And I, I like guess, the
1: Wild Huntsman, though. That's kind of neat.
0: I guess in Disney did actually do a.
1: So they did Sleepy or the Legend of Ichabod Crane, I think, didn't yes. they? Yeah. It was creepy.
0: Yeah, they did. Disney have used the Headless Horseman trope a few times. I only in various things. There was an earlier one as well.
1: I remember watching the animated movie when I was younger and being absolutely horrified. Yeah, because it's a scary movie.
0: Yeah. So okay, which brings us neatly on to the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Woo! So
1: the Johnny Depp movie.
0: Yes, by American author Washington Irving, written. And what I'm going to be taking from is a lot of what Henry John Steiner wrote. Um, on in 2011, he did like a very very full article on it in, I believe, the Sleepy Hollow Press. Cool. Okay, little quote from Washington Irving: mm. From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, the Dutch, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and pervade the very atmosphere.
1: I'm gonna sound really stupid. Yes. Is Sleepy Hollow a real place? Yes. And it's called Sleepy Hollow. It's not just like a, a Hamlet that they...
0: I will get into okay. all of that. Cool. I'm going to tell you the legend of Sleepy Hollow first, then I'm going to tell you all the real life stuff. Cool. Okay. So the legend of Sleepy Hollow is actually one of the earliest examples of American fiction that has continued with popularity. Cool. Um, especially during Halloween, because of the whole pumpkin for a head thing. So the legend relates to the tale of Ichabod Crane, a lean, lanky, and extremely superstitious schoolmaster from Connecticut, who competes with Abraham Brombones van Brunt, <laughs> <laughs> the town rowdy.
2: One more time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Abraham Brombr- Brombones van Brunt. Okay. <laughs> uh, for the hand of the 18-year-old Katrina van Tassel, the daughter and sole child of the wealthy farmer, Baltus van Tassel. Oh my
1: God. I know. This is, the, this is what they use for the Disney movie, I believe.
0: Yes, Also, I will point out that Ichabod Crane... Ichabod Crane? Ichabod Crane is actually a real person that no has nothing to do with this. Oh. And Washington Irving just really liked the name. It's a cool name. And apparently he was very big at just taking names of stuff that he... People's names that he'd heard that he liked. Uh, and just being that's like... A, that's a bit apocryphal. <laughs> I'm now going to make you a a,
1: a... a very skinny, nerdy school teacher. Yeah,
0: who's going to end up not very... Happy
1: Not very, very um, poorly.
0: so they there's a love triangle one night he uh Ichabon, Ichabod proposes to Katrina, and she says no oh um having felt secure her hand, uh he rides home on uh gunpowder, his horse by the way, I must have read this four times and kept skipping the bit where they told me that the horse was named Gunpowder. <laughs> And I kept reading the rest of it going, what the hell is he doing with gunpowder?" <laughs> okay. <laughs> Heavy-hearted and crestfallen between the, through the woods between Van Tassel's farmstead and the farmhouse in Sleepy Hollow, where he is quartered. He's a pretty superstitious man, and mm-hmm. one of the ways that Abraham Brombrones Brown Vunt has been messing with him is to tell him about all the different weird, creepy goings-on in Sleepy Hollow. Okay. Which apparently is a town famous for its hauntings. Sounds like it. So... He's been just kind of messing with this guy's head Mm. because he wants to marry the guy that he wants to marry, girl that he wants to marry. So after passing reportedly haunted spots, his active imagination starts to get like a little over the top. After a few different like ghost sightings, he encounters a cloaked rider at an intersection of a menacing swamp. Unsettled by his fellow travelers' eerie sighs and silence the teacher is further horrified to discover that his companion's head in the form of a jack-o'-lantern. Mm-hmm. And for those that are English and don't know what a jack-o'-lantern is, it's a pumpkin with a face carved out of it.
1: You do not do that over here.
0: We do, but we don't call them jack-o'-lanterns.
1: What do you call them? Pumpkins. Oh.
0: Carved pumpkins.
1: Mm.
0: Not his, Not on his shoulders, but on his saddle. Like I said, remember the skull with the candles in it, yeah. the Irish guy, so I think that there's got to be a tie-in yeah. there. In a frenzied race to the bridge adjacent to the old Dutch burying ground, in he the the ghost is supposed to vanish in a flash of fire and brimstone. Before crossing it, Ichman rides for his life, desperately goading gum, gunpowder down the hollow. However, while Crane and Gunpowder are unable to cross the bridge ahead of the ghoul, to Crane's horror, it rears his horse and hurls its severed pumpkin head directly at Ichabod. Mm-hmm. The schoolmaster attempts to dodge, but is too late. The horticultural missile strikes his head and sends him tumbling headlong into the dust. Katrina marries Brom Bones, uh, who was supposed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabon was related. Mm-hmm. The only relics of the schoolmaster are his discarded hat, gunpowder's trampled saddle, and a mysterious shattered pumpkin. The story implies that, in fact, the horseman was really Brom yeah. with his pumpkin.
2: Oh,
1: and he, okay. Can you imagine being able to throw a pumpkin that hard and that uh, far?
0: Well, apparently maybe he just scared him off and he didn't die. He just was yeah. terrified and ran. Yeah. So that's kind of where this all began, mm-hmm. I guess. So, where does this Headless Horseman from Sleepy Hollow come from? The Headless Horseman is actually supposed to be a Hessian soldier on horseback.
1: What, what is Hessian? Because I've heard that term like used for with like burlap, like burlap sacks or Hessian sacks. Yes. But is it like, is Hessia a was it a place? Don't know. Okay.
0: Should have looked that up. Ben, oh. we'll look it up. Hessian. Hessian. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ben looks up what Hessian is. He'll cut in a minute and tell us. They. He is supposed to tether his horse amongst the headstones of the old Dutch burying ground of Sleepy Hollow. Now, the headless horseman is said to be searching for his own head and doomed for eternity to be looking for where his head is. Uh, the reason why he can't find it is pretty straightforward, which is that it was blown off by a cannon in theory. <laughs> in October of 1776, Washington and his army were in serious trouble. They were making a strategic withdrawal through Westchester County um, inspired by dire necessity, and the line of march was directed towards the White Plain from Manhattan. White Plains was nearly too n- neither too close to Long Island Sound nor too close to the Hudson River. I don't. Although the year had begun pretty well for Washington, at this point, he was not doing so great, mm-hmm. and a powerful British invasion force presented it. For anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Revolutionary War here. What's a
2: Hessian? Yeah, so I, so I knew that a Hessian is a German soldier who fought for the British. They were from the Hesse regions of Germany. Thank you. Um, a Hessian bag, or burlap sack, mm-hmm. was called that because the uniforms were actually made from that material. Okay. Oh, cool. Thank Thanks. you. So from that area for the... Hesse.
0: Hesse. Okay, yeah. so...
2: Hesse... something. Cool. Thank you. How- I think it's pronounced Hessian, not Hesse. Oh, Hessian. Oh, Hessian. Yeah now, yeah, now it all makes sense. Yes.
0: So. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you now. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.
2: It is H-E-S-S-I-A-N. Yeah, that seems... Oh, whatever. So it is Hessian. German's weird.
0: But Hessian fabric, I think, is Hessian. Anyway, yeah, okay.
2: Uniform of soldiers from the former Land Graviate of Heshi and its successors. Okay. Including current German state of Heshi.
0: Cool. All right. Bye. So, powerful British invasion prevented its, uh, presented itself at Staten Island, threatening the massive fortifications he had at New York. In short order, the British inflicted a bitter defeat on Washington's forces at Brooklyn, and the dilapidated... Depleted, American army narrowly managed to escape from Long Island to Manhattan. There it was forced to abandon its fortifications in lower Manhattan and press northward, settling into a ditch ditch defensive position at Washington Heights. Okay? Okay. So they're on the retreat. Mm -hmm. The British army continued to... By the way, this is a really long article about how this battle went down. The British army continued to move up the edge of Long Island. I not, honestly had no concept when I before I read this that all of this happened in like Manhattan in New York. That's weird. Like
2: it's very weird to think.
0: I just had no idea that this was like a battleground was in Manhattan in New York.
2: It would have been New Amsterdam at the time. Which is okay, which is a fine thing. But also like it was just it was just rocky farmland. Yes. Like it there were no It wasn't Manhattan. It, they didn't start sort of like the five boroughs until it was like the, the mid-1800s.
1: Yeah. Okay. If Gangs of New York is anything to go off of.
0: That's what I... That's okay. literally all I can think about. Okay.
1: We should do the butcher.
0: Okay, so under General Howe, British Army, General William Howe, um, under his command was a large contingent of Haitian hey. troops. Oh, a term applied to the German mercenary troops um,
1: auxiliarized
0: be, to the British Army. And
1: it'd be Hessian. Not Haitian, because Haitian oh, would be it's
0: Haiti.
2: from Haiti. <laughs>
0: At the Battle of the White Plains, which is held around Halloween time, hence the tie-in with Halloween, mm-hmm. it would be they, uh, the Hessians who had the first honor of launching the main attack against the right flank of the Americans on Chatterton Hill. It was the first significant opportunity for the force to prove itself before the assembled armies. They managed to acquit themselves quite well in the military sense. However, the day went on and many more battles happened, and for the next two days, the American army took up a slightly new position to the north of what was the town of White Plains. On November the 1st, so basically the day after Halloween, the face-off continued and the combatants began an artillery exchange. The artillery battles on both sides pounded away as the armies watched on. A Hessian Hessian, <laughs> Hessian uh, artillery man was decapitated According to American General William Heath, by a cannonball. A shot from the American cannon at this place took the head of a mounted Hessian. Hessian. Hessian <laughs> artillery man. One of the artillery horses was also left dead and decapitated on the field. Oh my God. Okay. So the military standoff continued until November 5th. But is it possible that this is pretty much where the start of this happens? Yes. Um, because this is very close to where Sleepy Hollow is. Mm -hmm. And actually, before Washington Irving even started writing about it, the Headless Horseman had become a neighborhood ghost. How might he have come to be buried in Sleepy Hollow? Unfortunately, probably wasn't. Well, actually, no, they they think they did. Oh, really? Yes, because they picked up his headless body and took, because the soldiers were grieving, and they took it... Down to the partly deserted valley at that point of Sleepy Hollow, um, and the stone ch- st- stone church stood there, reminiscent of the ones that the German soldiers remembered from their home country. Mm-hmm. And beside the rear of the church, quietly and without ceremony, they dug a grave and laid their friend's headless remains to rest beneath it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In early di- in early November, and the trees were uh, uh, editorializing, and the trees had their coats of autumn crimson. The air was crisps. crisp, crisp. The soldiers did not langu- linger. They had their orders to move on. And they took one farewell over their shoulders and drove their car.
2: Huh. That's touching. Um,
0: they reckon his head was so terribly shattered by a 12-pound, 12-pound cannonball God. that they just buried it in the field of White Plainsville.
1: The Revolutionary War was gruesome.
0: So that is kind of the real...
1: <laughs> Big air quotes.
0: Massive air quotes. The real story of the headless horseman of Ooh, C.P. Hitler. I didn't
1: realize it. That- it, I never would have assumed that it was an American folk story to begin with. Yeah. Because most of the things aren't. No. Unless they're Native American. Um, that's really cool, though.
0: Texas has its own headless horseman. Uh, okay. Did you know about this one?
1: How big is it?
0: <laughs> it's the biggest one. <laughs> Huge.
1: Huge. <laughs>
0: so it's uh, a novel by Mayan Reed, who publicized it, uh, published it monthly. In serialized form between eighteen sixty five and eighteen sixty six.
1: Is it a comic book or?
0: No, it's um, like the true story. Again, air quotes. Yep. Of El Morito. Um, and Taylor was inspired by. Uh, Taylor was a veteran of the Texas Revolutionary War with Mexico. Okay. The Civil War, an Indian fighter who was also involved in the Sutton Taylor feud, once considered to be the state's longest and deadliest feud. Okay. I also now makes me want to know what now is considered the longest and deadliest feud in Texas, if it's no longer the Sutton Taylor feud. <laughs> and uh, there was actually a historian that talked about this with Taylor, and he learned a lot about Texas history firsthand from Taylor. And basically, it's a written story, but it's kind of a, I don't know, um, I guess you'd call it a docudrama now. Oh. Like, he Taylor, this was a real story. That
1: did he not just kind of appropriate? Because it's because the headless horseman is called El Morito, um, which is obviously Spanish. Was this sort of was this taken from Spanish? From or for, I'm sorry, it's from Mexican culture, or does he just use a, a Spanish? I, I, well,
0: I think it was the fight with the revolu- with them in the Texas Revolutionary War with Mexico. Okay. Um, the story takes place in Texas soon after the war with Mexico. Okay. Uh, Louise Poindexter, a beautiful newcomer, is courted by two men, the arrogant and vindictive Cassius Clayhorn, (laughs) and the dashing but poor uh, mustanger Maurice Gerald. Calhoun plots to eliminate his rival when tragedy strikes. Louise's brother, the young Henry Poindexter, is murdered. All clues point to Maurice Gerald as the assassin, (sighs) and at the same time a headless rider is spotted near the Poindexter plantation. Uh, Wallace decided to use the ringleader's body of a whole load of Mexican horse thieves as a warning to others. Bigfoot decapitated the dead man and put his body on a wild stallion that the two had caught and tied between two trees. They thrust his head into a sombrero, secured by a strap and tied to the pommel under his saddle, and they set the horse loose to roam the hilly countryside. Ew. I don't know how that ties into the... women... I feel like I should start this whole segment again, but I'm not going to. Did
1: they just... um? So, so Wallace, he's, okay. the, he's not the one who wrote the story, right?
0: No, Taylor wrote the so- story. Right. And Taylor did not put himself in the story, but according to the historian Warren Hunter who talked to Taylor, Taylor may have just left himself out of the story because, well...
1: Because he cut someone's head off. Because he
0: cut someone's head off, put it in a sombrero, That's grim. strapped into a horse and left it to gallop around Pretty and gray. perhaps didn't want to be related.
1: To I can movie. imagine that. If I did something like that, and I'm not saying that I ever have, uh, I probably wouldn't, yeah, I'd probably do the best I could. To I swear to God, myself. there's so many
0: versions of this Texas story. like, and And people just keep seeing a wily headless rider. And I don't know.
1: Okay, (laughs) it gets a bit confused.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I was reading. Anyway, okay, I'm going to tell you about one last one. Oh, my God. Okay. Pervasive. All right, Uh, I might cut that whole thing about Texas. Um, Okay, so the last one I'm going to talk to you about is the headless mule of Portugal. Okay. And Brazilian folklore. In most tales, it's the ghost of a woman that has been cursed by God for her sins, (laughs) often said to be a concubine, or to fornicate with a priest within a church. And condemned to turn into a fiery, spewing, headless mule galloping through the countryside from Thursday sundown to Friday sunrise. Why? The myth has several <laughs> variations concerning the sin that the cursed that has turned the cursed woman into a monster, including infanticide, necrophilia, sacrication against the church, fornification. The mule's appearance varies greatly from region to region. Its colour is mostly commonly given as brown, sometimes black. It has iron horseshoes that produce a hideous trotting sound, louder than any other horse is capable of making. Despite being headless, the mule still neighs, usually very loudly. It sometimes moans like a crying woman. It also has a bridle tied to its non-existent mouth and spews fire through its non-existent nostrils.
1: Or in some versions
0: from its severed neck.
1: That would be, yeah, that's terrifying.
0: That's what I'm telling you about so,
1: it. So there's a ghostly bridle. So like, is the bridle like? So if I'm imagining, if Treebeard's head was invisible, yes. Treebeard is Isadora's horse, by the way. Yes. Um, I that and he had a bridle in. That's what they're describing. Yes. Okay. But there's also
0: fire shooting from where its nostrils will be. Okay. Now I did see one depiction of it where it literally looked like its neck and head had been cut off, and fire was just spewing from the
2: the, the chest. Ugh.
0: Again, there is a. Like, there are some tie ins here. Transformation usually occurs at crossroads. Okay. It cannot be transmitted because it is acquired as a result of a sin, not like a vampiric curse where you can uh, like, bite somebody. Okay. <laughs> um, it can be reversed temporarily by spilling the mule's blood by a prick of a needle or tying it to a cross. What does it do?
1: I mean, like besides galloping around and blowing fire out of its neck.
0: It doesn't really, it just kind of terrifies people, oh, I think.
1: I guess that's enough to um, poke it with a needle.
0: A more stable removal of the curse can be achieved by trying to remove its bridle, in which case the woman will not shapeshift again while her benefactor is alive. Tying the bridle back to the woman's mouth will return the
1: curse. So this curse is... Not on on a ghost. It's a a real life person. Person who's yeah. Gotcha. Who's like a werewolf. Okay, oh, that's yes. why that's why you drew the comparison with vampires, vampires. because it can't be transmitted. Got yes. it. Yes. Okay. That makes more sense. This I was is why, confused. like,
0: okay, so, um, but it it's kind of interesting because whenever we talk about ghosts and things like that, there's always a lot of things that are in common here. Okay, when the mule changes back to human form, the accursed woman will be naked, sweating, and smelling of sulfur,
1: like a demon, like a
0: demon. Anyone who encounters the mule should not cross its path because the mule could trample them down. Um, You should try and remove its bridle to save the woman. If you lay face down covering, uh, then it might not notice you and it might just trot away because apparently even though it's got a bridle, it doesn't have great vision anymore. What? I I don't know.
1: What does a bridle have to do with vision?
0: (laughs) Um, There is some variations of it where it's actually a priest, not a woman Uh who committed the crime. And then they are cursed to ride as a headless ghost rider around Brazil.
2: Or Um, Portugal. Or
0: Portugal. Uh, I think that one particularly came from Brazil. Okay, so let's talk really quickly about where all this stuff came from. The headless mule may be a personification of the latent paganism of some other popular practices echoed in the collective consciousness of a people indoctrinated with a simplistic view of Catholicism. Yeah, got it. It showcases the wild instincts and repressed behaviors that are unacceptable in a Judeo-Christian society, and there may be some connection between the Brazilian headless mules and the folklore about witches in Western Europe. So basically, precautionary tale,
1: but also like a, a symptom of like the Christian religion coming into yeah. places where it wasn't understood. Well, yeah, like invade, like nearly invading.
0: Yeah. Um, Any time being personified as an animal implies a negative view of a character. Mm-hmm. Apparently, horses and mules are considered a symbol of sexual potency and brutal feats. Oh, yeah. Um, and the absence of a head may be a metaphor for the lack of reason. Oh, clean yes. sort of
1: explanation, isn't it?
0: And Frank's Franz Potter, a Gothic studies professor at National University.
1: Where's, what's that? Okay. Oh, okay. I'm just...
0: Citing my sources, this is also from grunge.com.
1: Okay. That's very general. Like National University is pretty general, isn't it? (laughs)
0: um, The horseman, like the past, still seeks answers, still seeks retribution, and can't rest. We are haunted by the past which stalks us so that we will never forget it. That is why you see headless horseman legends often arising in cultures in the wake of war, loss, and pestilence. For example, the Duhalan legend first came into prominence in the 6th century once Ireland was Christianized and ceased their sacrificing rituals.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Likewise, Irving's Headless Horseman spoke to the residual horrors of the American Revolution, um, the War of 1812, and uh, the recent yellow fever epidemic. And like uh, like anything, uh, uh, the threat of a Headless Horseman is a reminder of our history, that so just won't go away. Okay. You're searching for reason. Mm. Like legitimately,
1: yeah, actually,
2: yeah, cool.
0: So like, yeah, which I like you said seems pretty.
1: It's very clean, very,
0: very like, full circle.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting.
0: Soldier loses their head. Someone loses their head, and it becomes
1: yeah, but it's sort of like a representation of a country, or yeah,
0: or even I guess in the way of the night, they're trying to.
1: Well, because you said he went on a trip to f- find sh- how to be chivalrous or yes. how to be brave
0: and to prove that he was worthy of being a knight.
1: Interesting.
0: So it there's this definite idea that losing your head means losing your sensibilities. Yeah, like
1: it, it is like yeah, it's like the expression you like, don't lose your head.
0: Yeah. So
1: I never I never had once heard or read that the Headless Horseman was sort of like a so I, cultural representation. I
0: honestly thought when I said to you um, I was going to do The Headless Horseman, mm-hmm. I honestly thought I would be looking at, like, Sleepy Hollow. Yes. I really didn't think it would end up taking me... Like I said, there's also a good version in India. Yeah. Like, I really didn't think it would end up taking me around, like, most of the globe.
1: Yeah, and through lots of different bits with of With this idea history. that
0: you make... I mean... A lot of the time, the horse is headless, along with the the rider. The rider, but this idea of like
1: searching, so yeah. it all just comes back to finding searching. something. Yeah, finding
0: for something that's lost.
1: Interesting. Very cool.
0: And how it can drive you crazy, I guess.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So anyway, that very, was the headless horse. Very
1: cool. A lot to ponder on that.
0: I know. I know. And just think about all the creepy stuff. So I did. I did deliberately try and find.
1: <sighs> yeah.
0: Creepy,
1: yeah, creepy um, stuff, and
0: it ties back into vampires and werewolves quite a lot, which I thought was really
1: interesting. Yeah, that is a couple of times, in yeah. like from in two different cultures as yeah. well. Hmm. Cool, very cool. Thanks for uh, thanks for that. That was awesome.
0: Um, depending on whether or not I cut the whole thing where I did from Texas, where I got it really wrong, mm. um, <laughs> I just leave that in. Might as well. Uh, so you guys know that we. I do usually read my notes pretty thoroughly beforehand. <laughs> I think it's a really good example of how dead my brain is. All right, so next week we are going to do mythical.
1: Fantastic. Fantastical. We want to do something a bit, I don't know, different. Because we, I mean, like, I think when we started this podcast, I, we we've, may have talked about this before. We we expected to be talking about like unicorns every week. I don't think yeah. we ever expected that we'd be talking about the Dutch East India Company or a town in Connecticut.
0: No, or Princess Diana. Oh yeah, or
1: people who were real life people yeah um, with people and it's who- been really
0: cool and we've actually found that we're really enjoying that bit but yeah we're gonna try and take it back to its
1: roots yeah next week. we're gonna do something fantastical and i've got no idea uh we've thrown dragons around we've thrown I might uni- do unicorns we've thrown unicorns around so maybe i'll do dragons because i think Pliny the elder does some writing on dragons <laughs> and i gotta um, bring my man back also
0: it's uh our 13th episode
1: no, this is our 14th episode.
0: We've decided we're not sure whether to skip it and just go straight to 14. <laughs> but um, just for everybody, maybe we might put a quick why the th- number 13 is unlucky yeah, together. Yeah,
1: quick little 15. Or maybe
0: I might do a bonus episode while Adam's away. That's not a bad idea. Um, of why 13 is an unlucky number.
1: Yeah, so. cool. Look out for that. And look out for maybe uh, a freestanding reading of a poem about the Flying Dutchman.
0: Yeah, you never know what you're going to get on Who the knows. legendary tales. All right, guys, subscribe.
1: Yeah, tune in on the on the Spotify, on iTunes, on the other one. Overcast. Overcast, where you all are listening anyway. Thank you very much. We will see you next week. Bye.
0: Bye.